0: Hi-ho, Chad here. I hate doing these already. So last week we lost Muppet Show director Peter Harris. We've made a lot of jokes about Peter on the show, not at his expense, just the fact that so far he's directed every episode we've watched, and it's kind of become a running gag. Peter not only directed basically the entire first season, but he ended up directing 73 episodes, which is more than half. He also directed a whole bunch of Muppet videos, Muppets, A Celebration of 30 Years, Muppet Family Christmas, a personal favorite of mine. The Jim Henson Hour, The Muppets at Disney World. He also worked on the television show Spitting Image, which should conjure up nightmares in anybody between, like, I don't know, 38 and 45. And it's a real shame to lose Peter now, when The Muppet Show has just hit Disney+, and when people are out there enjoying, when millions of people are out there enjoying probably his greatest work in a way they haven't in decades. So it's a, it's a real shame. So rest in peace, Mr. Harris. Thank you very much for everything you did. Now stay tuned for this episode with guest stars Bruce Forsyth and Sandy Duncan. Both episodes, of course, directed by Peter Harris. Oh, there you are, old frog
1: friend. What? Would you lend me a fiver till payday? Father? you already owe me five. Oh, please, please. I know it, but I got to pay my writer, the legendary Dags Beasley.
2: The Legendary Gags comes pretty cheap, doesn't he? Well, uh, we worked out a good deal. Are you paying by the line? No, I pay him by the left. Oh, then he owes you money.
0: <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring. The most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host Nick Jackson. Nick, we're halfway through. Well, season one. We're halfway through season one. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> we're halfway. The year feels one, pretty though. long
3: already. My immediate thought was, it's not July.
0: No, no, we're, <laughs> half, we're We are. We are halfway through the first season of the Muppet Show. Um, actually, we were halfway as of last week um so we're already in the back half it's flying along but it's mm. it's been super cool how are you doing uh i'm glad it's friday <laughs> it's sleep is gonna be nice we've got the inauguration coming up people listening to this when it comes out in the future can either laugh at us for being uh hopeful for the inauguration or you know or whatever we'll see what happens only a few more sleeps till biden this is a uh, feat of lunatic daring we're a podcast about jim henson and the muppets before we get started i'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on facebook instagram and twitter and also lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our latest episodes our watch list and our bibliography right now we are going through the first season of the muppet show two episodes at a time yeah let's do it
2: it's the muppet show with our special guest star mr bruce Forsyth.
0: Episode 113, Bruce Forsyth, shot late July, early August 1976, aired in December in the U.S. of that year, and then January of 77 in the U.K. Hold on to your butt. It was written by Burns, Henson, Jewel in London. I know. I don't like change. It was directed by Peter Harris. Sir Bruce Joseph Forsyth Johnson. Yes, Forsyth Johnson, hyphen it. Very, very English. Was born February 22nd. 1928 in North London. He made his first television appearance at the age of 11, singing and dancing on a BBC talent show called Come and Be Televised. At 14, he started giving live performances in a song, dance, and accordion act called Boy Bruce, the Mighty Adam. Uh, I have not been able to find any recordings of that. He spent a lot of time traveling the UK after that, taking theater jobs where he could get them and sometimes worked at circuses where he actually developed apparently a very good strongman act. He became renowned as like a strongman at circuses. I don't know how that happens, but that's what it says. In 1958, he landed a gig hosting a weekly variety show called Sunday Night at the London Palladium. Which was produced by, and this is the important part, by Lou Grade's company ATV. Mm. Somewhere in there, he played the role of Swinburne in the 1971 Disney live-action classic Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Which I, I know that movie, but I have not seen it. Um, I think it's on Disney Plus, though. If you want to check it out. Editor's note: It is. After that, he hosted like a million game shows. Uh, there was the Generation Game from '71 to '77, for which he also wrote and performed the theme song. I... He was the host of Play Your Cards Right from 80 to 87, which was just the British version of the American game show Card Sharks. Because here's the thing, there's only like a half dozen game shows, maybe 10. And once one is successful, they just get Xeroxed to every country in the world. And we're going to see more of that. So he was on the British version of Card Sharks. And then he also hosted From 1995 to 2001, he hosted the British version of The Price is Right. He had a bunch of other shows, a bunch of other game shows that didn't uh, go over too well, I'm guessing because they weren't ripoffs of others. He also took a stab at having his own variety shows, but it never quite came together. Um, But he had a big revival in 2004, where he was a co-presenter on Strictly Come Dancing, which is the original Dancing with the Stars for nine years, actually. This
1: is Strictly Come Dancing. Please welcome your hosts
0: Again, there's no new ideas. He was appointed Officer of the Order of the British Empire in 1998, received a Royal Television Society Lifetime Achievement Award in 2009, was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in 2011, and he lit the Olympic flame for the 2012 Games in London. He died in Surrey in 2017 at the age of 89. Now, he was loved by millions, well respected, even had a a little recording career. And in 2013, Guinness World Records had him down as the man with the longest career in television. He was in television for over 70 years. But in reading about him, I couldn't find anything to hold on to. No cultural touchstone to say, aha, that guy. He was just a strictly British celebrity, a British television star. And for a large part of his career, a TV star on ITV working with our boy, Lord Lou Grade. And that's probably why he's on this episode. Not only was The Muppet Show produced in London with an English crew, it also aired in the UK at the same time as it did in the US and was just as big of a hit. So Forsyth to me feels kind of like a, a one for the home team type of thing, because I cannot culturally penetrate what made him a star. Not that he didn't deserve it, Seems like he worked his ass off. Again, 70 years. Props, dude. I just don't have a frame of reference even after researching him.
3: To be fair, though, looking at how he played into this episode, he seemed at home... I think he did a fine job. Yeah, he did an amazing job. I, not knowing about him doesn't mean that credit isn't due. I, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying at
0: all, but... It was just weird to me because, like, for most of these guests, we'd be able to find something, right? Lena Horn was in The Wiz. So you were like, aha, The Wiz, right?
3: Yeah, but there's still plenty of people where I'll be like I, I this person seems really nice I, but I'm, I'm not cultured.
0: It's easy to compare him to something like maybe a Bob Barker or Richard Dawson you know or like Drew Carey now like a game show host you know um, although you know he did but he also did acting and singing although Bob Barker did some acting too. Um,
1: I can't believe you're a professional golfer. I think you should be working at the snack bar.
0: You better relax Bob.
1: There is no way that you could have been as bad at hockey as you are at golf. All right let's go. Oh! You like that, old man? You want a piece of me? I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing.
0: Um, And Drew Carey, obviously, was a stand-up. So I think the label I would just slap on him is TV host or entertainer. It is weird to try to think of like an American comparison for him. There's some good stuff in this one. Um, There's also a character in this that I don't understand its presence at all. But we'll talk about the duck. (laughs) So uh, we have our opening. Gonzo, at the end of the the song, crashes his baton through the O, which is actually a repeat from the um, second episode, I think. And then Kermit comes out and introduces the Snurfs.
3: Too early for that to be copyright infringement. I think so.
0: Shh, you want to get sued? So the Snurfs, they're these... How do you even describe these damn things?
3: They almost look like pipe cleaner Muppets. And I I spent the first, probably third of the act wondering if someone had their arm up, or their arms up, or if they were marionettes. But the way that it was
0: moving... I guess. I think they're like, you know, those black box puppets, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've seen before, where they've got the black background, so the puppeteer is back there in all black. Mm -hmm. But they're dancing to a song called In a Little Spanish Town, which is a Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass song. Now, I will say the coordination in it was impressive, the way they were jumping around yeah. to the music and stuff. I, I You know, one thing we're, we're kind of discovering as we go along is these kind of like almost tech demos that are entertaining, but they're also showy pieces. They had a couple of those this episode too. And it uses this kind of weird split screen at the end. Yeah, it's, it's a fun number. Not much to say about it other than it's just these puppets dancing around, but there's some cool moves they do that I would be more interested in seeing the video of what it was like behind the scenes of this and to see what it looked like with the Muppet performers mm. backstage. So our backstage story for this week is that Fozzie is trying to figure out how to handle hecklers. He's got two hecklers up there in the balcony. They bug him every night. No one knows why they keep coming back to the show. They don't even know why they keep coming back to the show.
2: I just will never know.
0: Oh, but first, first. Okay, so Kermit's backstage and a duck walks up to him. Why do we all of a sudden have this duck? I think they're just trying new things out. And there's something weirdly familiar about the duck,
3: like not. And I don't know that it's strictly Muppet related either. I think some childhood show that I had featured a Duck puppet like this, including, like, the weird eyeshadow aspect.
0: The Duck is played by a woman named Cynthia Adler, who's actually doing the voice. She's mostly a voice actress. She only did two episodes in The Muppet Show. She would go on to do, like, some voiceovers for, like, Rankin and Bass specials, and she also, um, she would be, like, the, um, English voice for foreign films. The Duck walks up to Kermit and says,
1: Oh, Kermit! Yeah? I finally got the punchline down for the act tonight. Wanna hear it? Uh, okay. Good. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Who the is this duck? Fozzie is trying to figure out how to, uh, <laughs> how to fight up hecklers, and so he tries it out on Kermit. And again, I think we're really starting to see their relationship develop.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I do like that Fozzie's defense for being heckled is, Oh, please don't heckle <laughs> me. Uh,
2: Fozzie, is this an example of your razor-like wit? Could still use a little sharpening. Huh?
0: That's, that's, that's not going to work, Fozzie. That's showing too much weakness. He wouldn't have made it out of high school. I bet Fozzie had a bad time in high school. Oh, I'm sure he did. I bet it was rough. He was that kid that wanted to be the class clown, but nobody like paid attention to him because there was like a better looking kid who, who was funnier. He was that kid that was abnormally proud of his hat. <laughs> That's probably true too. He wore he probably wore that hat in high school. You're absolutely correct. Right. So then we get our first uh, musical number with Mr. Forsyth. It's a song called All I Need is the Girl, which is from the musical Gypsy. It's a Stephen Sondheim joint. This one is weird. So
3: speaking of like the demo pieces, the way that they set up the stage, I haven't rewatched a lot of early Sesame Street since we did our, our episode on it. So I don't know if it called to that. But the way that the stage was set up seemed like a pre-green screen sort of. I think it was more of that black background. Yeah. But there were there were like weird neon designs on it too yeah. before the bird comes in. Yeah.
0: So he's singing this song.
1: Got my tweed pressed, got my best vest all i need now is the girl
0: and then a big bird that they officially is called gawky bird it becomes kind of a dance with him and the bird but the bird is amorous towards him yeah it's Putting in some unwanted advances. But it was funny to me, though, that more than once he looked at the camera and he was like, I hope it's not a girl. He did that once. And then there was
3: the interruption to the song where he started, like, he did a bit with the bird where he was trying to walk it off stage and just being like, cool, well, I've got to finish my song. So we need you to leave. And then I guess the bird whispers sweet nothings in his ear and he's not Miss Piggy. So
0: can't deny those sweet nothings. (laughs) It's a cool bit of uh, puppetry. I'm guessing it's a couple people doing it. Doesn't doesn't seem like a, a one person job. At the end, he starts screaming out, asking for help from Mr. Hitchcock. Nice little birds reference there.
1: I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it.
0: To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird
1: war, the bird attack. play Call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it.
0: Maybe the hardest I laughed in the episode is the next thing uh, backstage where Fozzie is still trying to figure out how to handle hecklers.
2: You tell a joke and I will heckle you. Great. But Fozzie, I expect a great comeback. Right. <clears throat> uh, my
1: cousin's so dumb, he thinks Eggs Benedict is a mafia gangster. <laughs>
2: I've seen cheeseburgers funnier than that.
0: Fozzie hits him in the face with a rubber chicken. <laughs> I didn't see, I thought he'd,
3: because <laughs> I initially thought that he just punched Kermit, because I didn't see the chicken. It was like really blurry. Yeah. And I was like,
0: wow. Yeah. I had a completely different impression of their particular relationship. He smacks him in the face with a rubber chicken and then asks if that was too subtle. <laughs> but, but by the way, Fozzie, I'm with you, man. This is how you should deal with these people. <laughs> we go to At the Dance. Well, I thought it was interesting about At the Dance, and uh, Muppet Wiki brings this up, that they kind of twice in this At the Dance, they reuse a joke that they've used before. I don't remember which one it was, but there was an At the Dance where someone asked someone if...
1: Do you read very much? Oh, all the time... Oh, uh, do you like Kipling? Oh, well, I don't know. I
0: never kippled. Well, in this one...
1: do You like Duckling? I don't know. I
0: never Duckled. And then...
1: I'm really into American history. Oh? Mm-hmm. You know, Washington, Jefferson, Revere.
3: Oh, do you like
1: Franklin? Well, I don't know. I've never Frankled.
0: The exact same joke. Let I me mean, guess those are Jack Burns jokes. And then it has a weird monster that kind of lights up at the end. I mean, you see that joke
3: coming a mile away... You mind if I light up? Why not?
0: You still couldn't get away with it now, though, because it's a smoking joke on a family show. Mm -hmm. They have not really established yet that Janice and Floyd are a couple, Mm -hmm. because in this first season, it looks like Zoot and Janice are a thing. Because there's a great moment in the dance where she asks Zoot if he remembers what happened in 1776, and she he goes, "No," but there's a great party going on in 1342. So in my my head, I'm building up a canon that they did date. Because Zoot's going to end up kind of getting, becoming a quieter character as time goes on. So I'm thinking eventually Janice hooks up with Floyd and Zoot kind of like has to stay in the band, but he kind of becomes a little more reserved and quiet about it. That's just what I'm working with right now. Then we have our UK spot where we, we see the Google Jubilee jug band again, singing a timeless classic. I'm my own grandpa
2: this widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red my father fell
1: in love with her and soon they too were wed this made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life for my daughter was my mother cause she was my father's wife to complicate the matter even though it brought me joy i soon became the
3: father wait, wait, wait exposure to it before this was because I watched a bunch of bad movies in the 90s The Stupids had a rendition of it with it, Tom Arnold. it
0: totally did holy cow I completely forgot about that you're right you did it on like a talk show or I'm, something I'm totally gonna put in a clip from The Stupids <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in forever
1: Many, many years ago when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her and soon they two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very
2: life.
3: I just remember there being a plot about them thinking that someone was stealing their mail. Or no, someone, they thought someone was stealing their trash, because the trash men came and collected it. And somehow that set off the plot.
0: I worked in a video store in the 90s, and it was PG, so it was a movie we could have on um, mm-hmm. in the store. So I've seen it many times, but I don't remember any of it. But once you mentioned I'm, I'm my own grandpa, I do remember that he does sing that in that movie. It's a song written by uh, Dwight Lathan and Moe Jaffe, but it was made famous in like the 1940s by a, a group called Lonzo and Oscar. It's, an, it's kind of like uh, Tomorrow was, right? It's like a wordplay nonsense novelty song explaining how the man could be his own grandpa. It's just kind of, you know, inbred hillbilly jokes. <laughs> it's kind of what it is, but it's fun. Okay. So we have a talk. Sp- we have a, I think it was a very long talk spot.
3: Can we talk about this for a second though? Cause I'm pretty sure Kermit was pimping out Muppets like early. Yeah. Once more came into the picture. It seemed less like it, but only slightly. He's was like, yeah, I can get you a duck. You, uh, you want to spend some time with a duck?
0: Oh yeah. Okay. So this was weird. Bruce says he feels strange being on the Muppet show. They're doing this thing again that they've done before where they're misconstruing slang.
2: Well, it's very nice to be here, Kermit, although, of course, it is a little strange. Strange? Yeah, well, it isn't like any other show on television. I mean, I'll, I'll buy the fact that you're a frog who can talk. Well, there's nothing strange about that. And I'll even buy the chicken uh, who shares my dressing room. No, but she's not for sale. I oh, beg your pardon? No, the chicken's not for sale. Oh. I mean, I wouldn't mind selling her, but uh, her husband plays in a band.
0: But then it turns into a thing where they start trading animals. But you are correct. On the Muppets, animals are people, but not all animals are people. Some chickens are just chickens. But even then, yeah. like it's a weird thing. It's a weird bit. It also has a naked pig in it. Like the pig that like the pig that he tries to trade him is naked. And while normally, of course, a pig would be naked and the Muppets, the pigs are never naked. So it was very disturbing. Like, I'm used to pigs wearing clothes on The Muppet Show. So when he brought out a naked pig, I was like, gross. Put on some clothes, pig. I wasn't down at first, but I thought it ended up being pretty funny.
3: Yeah, it was an interesting one.
2: Well, how much to rent this duck for a month? Uh, for one month, this, this duck will cost you a pig and two rabbits. A pig and two rabbits. Well, yes. Hold on a minute, will you? Uh, yeah, one you pig. Got? There we are. Yeah, and uh, I'm fresh out of rabbits. Oh. Uh, have you got change of a rat Oh, sure. I can let you have a woodpecker. Go. Oh, good. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that's fair. Okay, is okay. that a
0: deal? But you're right. There is something weird about them buying and selling animals in a world where they aren't themselves animals.
3: If I remember correctly, was it here that Piggy got really upset about it?
0: I think, yeah, Piggy shows up and gets upset.
3: Bruce picks her nose.
0: She hits Bruce and then Bruce, like, she gets into a full on battle with Bruce. Oh, yeah. She hits him and he hooks her nose and then she hits him again. Yeah.
1: Once again, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you those two solid citizens of song, Owain and Wanda, decent, decent people.
0: And they come out singing. It's a musical version of what is probably the most mocked poem of all time. I would say.
1: A poem lovely as a
3: tree.
0: Um, tree by Joyce Kilmer. Um, you know I think i will never see is something as lovely as a tree or however it goes this version that they have is put the music in like 1922 but it's it's kind of a really it's 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 like a very famous poem but it's also just kind of treacly and and um so on the nose that it's just been made fun of a lot but of course there's wayne and wanda singing a song called trees there's only one way to end that you see it moving pretty early in the uh act too well remember they never get more than 15 seconds man (laughs) Like, mm-hmm. they never get more than, like, the first line of a song out before something horrible happens to them. So uh, so they get crushed by a tree, and that's the end of Wayne and Wanda. Oh, we totally missed it. Sorry, there was a bit earlier where, um...
2: Uh, Fuzzy, oh, Fozzie, huh? I, I know you're worried about your act tonight. Oh, boy, am I. I, I really want to get the best of those two old hecklers, Kermit. Well, I can guarantee you that Statler and Waldorf will not heckle you tonight. But... But they always heckle me. Every show they heckle me. Well, why not tonight? Well, the show's running long and your act's been cut.
0: I forgot about that part. And he asks Hilda to catch him when he faints. (laughs) She doesn't. I still love Hilda. And she does not. I do love Hilda. I've grown to really love Hilda. Because she doesn't seem to like anybody there.
3: I don't think she dislikes anyone. She's just like that, I guess, a character archetype of old woman who just doesn't care what people think of her yeah they just don't care about your feelings
0: i mean sometimes she can be sweet but but she doesn't seem to have a whole lot of patience for fozzy <laughs> later backstage fozzy is uh wants to get put back into the act
1: kermit you, now you've got to let me do my big act in the show please yeah but listen fozzy well, this is just one week oh but but kermit in this type of show people expect a stand-up comic
0: yes and we got one.
1: Oh. Oh, then I am going on after
2: all. Oh,
0: No, Bruce Forsyth is. In my research, I never found any evidence that he had done a lot of stand-up, but I guess his role as an MC and a host, he tells jokes, right, I guess? I did notice in this, too, Gonzo has a little walk-by in this scene. I guess I never realized how little, how, let's say, tertiary of a character Gonzo is in this first season.
3: They don't seem to know what to do with him, because any time we've seen him, I guess you can argue this for for both Gonzo and Fozzie, but they're mostly there to do one thing apiece. piece. Fozzie's branched out a little bit to do other things, but generally... But he's in every episode, though. He is. He's front and center. They're specifically to do stand-up, and Gonzo's there specifically to do the experimental mm-hmm. art thing when he does.
0: Fozzie just gets a lot more backstage stuff, though, at this time, at this point, because mm-hmm. he he's officially Kermit's sidekick. Obviously, Gonzo's going to go on to become a much bigger part of the show and the Muppets. Dave Goals is a pretty new puppeteer at this point as well. Goals doesn't even want to be doing it. Dave Goals would rather be back in the Muppet Workshop making puppets. I just noticed, like, Gonzo goes by and he says a line, and I'm like, I think that's all the Gonzo we get this week. That kind of sucks.
3: Oh, you mean for this particular episode? Yeah, for, the, for this
0: episode. For this episode, yeah.
2: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight we thought we'd give Fozzie Bear a rest. No, you're not giving him a rest, you're giving us a rest. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, be that as it may, substituting for Fozzie tonight is our special guest star, Mr. Bruce Forsyth. Thank
1: you so much, thank you. And may I say, you look a wonderful audience.
2: Now, well, don't be too sure, we haven't heard your jokes yet. <laughs> Sir, you're old enough to have heard my jokes, Bob Hope's jokes, and Milton Berle's. In fact, if you've heard Milton Berle's jokes, you've heard everybody's jokes. Uh...
0: Bruce goes out on stage to do Fozzie's, to do his, to replace Fozzie and doing a stand-up act, and uh, it it ends with a big back and, f- and it has a big back and forth between him and Statler and Moldorf where he makes a bunch of references that I did not get. He was talking about, like, contemporary British television shows, and I was like, I have no clue what you're talking about, dude.
3: We've been talking about them being able to bring home the arc for the episode, and it seems like this one they really successfully did that on. Fozzie learned how to, and he overshot it, so it makes sense that we'll see a return to normalcy, but, like, Fozzie learned how to heckle back, and he learned, like, even without getting all the references, there's delivery and there's timing that he's got down. Yeah, Fozzie gets vicious. Uh Forsyth as well. He's yeah. he's able to control the the rhythm of the conversation regardless of what he's saying.
0: Well, he's clearly a man who's given, like, monologues and stuff, right, on talk shows and everything and and stuff. And, like, I didn't like the first half of this sketch only because I thought the references were so dated and so specifically British that I had no idea. He he talked about a television show called The Forsyth Chronicles and then made a joke about the actor in it playing him, which I, I was like... Was there a show? I'm assuming there was a show called... It just... it just Editor's note. So, The Forsyth Saga was a three-book series of novels started in 1922 by John Galsworthy about this, like, upper-class family. In 1967, the BBC did air something called The Forsyth Saga and a sequel, but I found no indication of anything called The Forsyth Chronicles. So, my guess is Bruce just got it wrong in that he meant The Forsyth Saga. But he he lays into uh, Statler and Waldorf pretty well. Like I said, almost goes overboard. But
1: hey, is that a suit you're wearing? It's a nice one, yeah. But won't your wife notice the hole in the living room rug? <laughs> uh, That's good. Now you're rolling. Go in for the kill. Go oh, in for okay. the kill. Hey, that some he nosy got there, Buster. Why don't you rent yourself out as an anteater? <laughs> uh, I like it. I oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quit while your head. You call that a head? I've seen better heads than cabbages. Don't <laughs> lose your audience.
0: But he doesn't really learn, because <laughs> um, he, he's going to forget this lesson. It's a weird case of
3: it making sense that he would forget the lesson. Because he goes too far. Well, yeah, he goes too far, and he doesn't really learn it, if that makes sense. Like, he's he picks up a trick to fixate on, and then he he hammers that home until it's too much.
0: But. Yeah, that's fair. And so then the two of them sing a song called Side by Side. Oh,
3: we ain't got a barrel of money, maybe we're
1: ragging at it.
0: We travel along. Written in 1927, it was kind of made popular in 1953 by a woman named Kay Starr, sang it, but it's been covered by like Jean Krupa, Pat Boone, Ray Charles, Patsy Cline.
1: Side by side. Side by side.
0: Actually, um, Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello sing it in the uh, notorious 1990s uh, action comedy Hudson Hawk.
1: Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. We may be ragged and funny, but we'll travel.
0: They had previously used the song on Salmon Friends, actually, and uh, Rolf and Jimmy Dean sang it together in 1963. But yeah, it's, there's nothing much to say about it. They sing so- they sing side by side. Then we go to Veterinarian's Hospital, one of my favorites. Did you notice what Piggy was doing at the beginning of this? I think she was getting drunk. <laughs> she was taking a drink.
3: <laughs> and then she looked at the camera and she like got rid of the, the glass. It wasn't a sip either. She was like quaffing that. It's
0: like she was downing a champagne flute. <laughs> Like she was, and then then she gets, you know, caught on camera and throws it away. Again, there's some untoward things happening in veterinarian's hospital. So for this one, the, our duck, the duck comes back and the duck is our patient. And this is a pretty short one, but a really funny one. They think that their patient is a chicken. And whenever the chicken corrects and she says, no, I'm a duck, they all just physically duck.
1: Shall we prepare for surgery on the chicken? Duck! Ah! What was?
0: I don't
1: know. Somebody yelled duck.
0: Well, let's get back to the chicken. Ah! (laughs) They end up at a pretty good rhythm, I think. And of course, with the kind of Boy Who Cried Wolf ending where, you know, they say duck and Rolf's like, I'm not falling for that. And, you know, the lamp comes down and hits him in the head. Pretty, pretty funny. The big kind of closing number where Bruce and Miss Piggy sing a, a duet. It's a 1940 ballad, a standard called Let There Be Love. I think the most famous versions by Nat King Cole. I don't know. I, I, it's the problem with the, the numbers like this, right? There's not a whole lot to say. They sing the song.
1: Let there be you. Let there be me. Let there be oysters under the sea.
3: We saw, I, I'm forgetting his name, the guy that was the MC for Sex and Violence. He was one of the background singers as opposed to leading the choir. What was his name? Nigel.
0: Yeah, he's also the head of the orchestra. Hmm. Piggy brings in a chorus of pigs to come in and sing back up too. But yeah, it's just kind of a slow love song between her and Bruce. You know, they're going to do that with Piggy, they're going to give her these numbers. I don't remember anything particularly funny about it. I don't think it was trying to be. And then we get to our closing, and Fozzie can't stop insulting Kermit.
2: (laughs) And Kermit, you're a wonderful MC.
1: Yeah, but he's an MC squared. He's so dumb, he thinks Veronica Lake is a body of water. Please,
2: Fozzie, a a little humility. Humility. Yeah, if you want to be working
0: next week. Uh, He's created a monster. It may have sounded like I was a little down on him when I started talking about him, but I did enjoy it. I thought he did a good job. I do believe, though, that a lot of his game shows were on ITV, which means he was, you know, worked for and with Lou Grade. So it probably wasn't a stretch to get him on the show. And it did feel like this was one for the British audience. Can't imagine Americans at home were super psyched to get a Bruce Forsyth episode.
3: They might have still enjoyed the episode. Oh, of course. Like the degree to which they knew him ahead of time would have been different, probably.
0: I still don't understand why we had the duck. It's like they came up with the veterinary's hospital sketch and worked backwards and and just put the duck in it.
3: Maybe they just had to fill in that blank.
0: (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi-ho. I'm in a great mood tonight. And that's because our special guest star is a real good friend and a lovely lady, Miss Sandy Duncan.
0: So, Nick, I'm of the belief that Sandy Duncan is one of the whitest women to ever live. Tell me about her. I mean,
3: with that set up, um, (laughs) what are the metrics for that scale? I don't know. This is a dangerous road for me to go down. I'm going to leave.
0: (laughs) Well, as a white person, I'm going to say that I'm qualified and Uh I'm just going to say that She's a very, very white lady. Just, There's just the blonde hair and the like perky. She's just so like, anyway, go ahead. Sandy Duncan was born
3: in Henderson, Texas, February 20th, 1946. She was known primarily for playing Peter Pan on Broadway. She was the one that played Peter Pan after Mary Martin. And she was also known for a sitcom called The Hogan Family, which I have no
0: frame of reference for, but was apparently a big deal to a lot of people. I'll talk about that. That's actually a cool story. Well, not a cool story. Uh, It's a weird... It's a crazy story.
3: Her film debut was in 1970 in a Disney movie called The Million Dollar Duck. Uh, She lost vision in her left eye after surgery to remove a benign tumor, but her eye still tracked with her right eye, so she never got a prosthetic. So during the course of this episode, she's only got vision in one eye, but her other eye isn't lazy or anything like that. I just... That's kind of incredible. Throughout her career, especially beginning in the 70s, she has been lauded as a strong comedic talent, even though a lot of the shows that she was on didn't necessarily last very long. In 1971, she was on a sitcom called Funny Face, which, like many others, got generally poor reviews, but people liked her. Eventually, that show would be rebranded as the Sandy Duncan show, but even then, it would only last for 13 episodes. She was a spokesperson for Wheat Thins throughout the 70s and 80s. Like many other actors and actresses, from this i know her from voiceover work without knowing that i knew her voiceover work um she was in the fox and the hound she was in rockadoodle which if you haven't seen rockadoodle i can't exactly recommend it to you but i love it i have never seen it i think it was don bluth i think it was you're right yeah uh like 1990s same era as all dogs go to heaven my dad would be able to tell me this apparently there was a bionic woman million dollar man crossover featuring bigfoot that she had a
0: a key role in well i'm interested now
3: there was a venture brothers reference where the million dollar man was a character in show but it started a a romantic relationship with bigfoot and they were together in hiding like knowing this now i imagine that's a reference but i don't know if it was like a bigger deal she was also well known for playing pinocchio in 1976 uh for a tv movie She's had a lot of literals on a lot of different shows. She was in Scooby-Doo a couple of times. And she's still alive today, at least as of this recording. She's someone that would have existed on, on the periphery. And I I think that she she doesn't have as many credits to her name, but there were a number of things that I think she did for a long time and as long as she could. And I think you were talking last episode about the difference between being a TV star and being a film star. I do think she was definitely more in that TV star category. Absolutely. A lot of those old shows are things that are, unless they get remade or something, are not going to be brought forward.
0: I have three frame of references for Sandy Duncan. One, I knew she played Peter Pan.
2: Can you really
3: fly? I'll teach you how lucky you fly. I'll teach you how to jump on the wind's back and away we'll go. Wendy, when you're sleeping in your silly bed, you might be flying about with me saying
1: funny things to the stars. How do you do it? You just think lovely, wonderful thoughts and...
0: Two uh, Wheat Thins commercials. (laughs) I I do remember her from those. And then the Hogan family. So Valerie Harper, who was a comedian and an actress, she was on on the Mary Tyler Moore show. She had a show called Valerie in the 1980s. It was her and her family. Actually, Jason Bateman was the oldest son on it. Hmm. Due to contract disputes, Valerie Harper ended up leaving Valerie. And the producers then decided to go on without her. At first, they called it Valerie's family, and they brought in Sandy Duncan to play the aunt, and they killed off Valerie's character in between seasons. And now Sandy Duncan comes and plays the perky kind of aunt. I think he played, she was playing like the um, the dad's sister. And so Valerie ended up suing them. So they changed it from Valerie's family to the Hogan family, and I think it was the Hogan's for a while. And listen, it didn't last long as the Hogan family, so they changed names like four times in like two years. <laughs> That's how I know Sandy Duncan. That and selling me weight thins. Episode 114, produced early August 1976, aired in uh, October in the US and November in the UK. Same writers, same directors. I'll let you know when that changes. <laughs> the filmmaker in me wants to like give credit every episode to who wrote and directed it, you know? But eventually it's like, okay, you know. So this one starts off with a bang.
2: Did somebody say bang? Uh, no.
0: <laughs> we haven't seen him in a few episodes. It, it's overdue. Yeah, we get some Crazy Harry, a lot of uh, early Jim Henson vibe in this opening. Lots of explosions. Is this the first time that Kermit's flown into the box?
2: I've always wondered what the show looked like from up here. In any event, let's start off the show with a musical number that was staged by our own Gopher Scooter. It could be a bomb, but... uh... (gasps) Did somebody say bomb?
3: (laughs) And then we have Fozzie introduce the first number.
2: Well,
1: somebody's got to introduce our guest star, so it might as well be the old Fozzie. Okay. Here she is, a star who does it all. She sings, she dances, she acts, and she makes you feel good all over. Miss Sandy Duncan!
0: So then we get the opening number, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I loved it. It reminded me a lot of After Hours. Well, so A Nice Boy Like Me is a 1975 Barry Manilow song. So for this number, they flip the gender. So the song is actually A Nice Boy Like Me. And so in this, they did all the—they they've just flipped all the pronouns. The cast in this one is nuts. You've got the Frenchman from Rita Moreno's uh, Apache Dance. All three of the mutations, I think, are in it. Mm -hmm. Sweetums, a lot of nightmare fuel, actually, now that I think about it. You've got the Vulture Freckles, Beautiful Day Monster. The Electric Mayhem is in it. It's a huge bit. did remind me a little bit the Rita Moreno one.
3: I didn't get that vibe from it, but I think it's just because I had other associations come in more quickly. Of the things that we've seen so far, this bit has probably felt the least 70s to me.
0: Okay, I can see that.
3: Like, it it definitely feels something mid to late 80s.
0: Yeah, she's just in a bar, and because the song is about being, the Barry Manilow song is just about being, you know, what's a nice guy like me doing at this bar that doesn't, close, you know, this bar that's always open and getting drunk. In this, she's dancing with all these different monsters while also just taking shots at the bar and drinking whiskey sours of clearly empty glasses. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, and she's kind of getting tossed around the bar a little bit.
3: Kind of, but also she's basically animal for this bit. She's kind of game for anything that's happening.
0: Do you think this is kind of playing with her good girl image a little bit too? They're kind of taking a stab at that a little bit. I haven't seen enough of her work outside of this.
1: Lost in a crowd Alone And thinking my
0: she's kind of in the same category as Doris Day where she's just a like if you would point to like a squeaky clean kind of image back then it would be Sandy Duncan almost satirically squeaky clean mm. so maybe they're taking a jab at that i mean that seems likely she seems like she's she's pretty
3: well committed to the bit i think this is pre manic pixie dream girl
1: won't you tell me what's a nice ah!
3: But the entire premise of this bit is that she's a vaguely functional alcoholic and everyone's tolerating it because they think she's cute. Yeah.
0: And they're trying to are they trying to take
3: her home? They are, but also she steals the Frenchman's drink. Like she's just there to get like
0: blackout drunk. You're right. I don't think they're trying to take her home. I think they're like trying to make sure she's okay because they're like what are what are you doing alone here, girl or whatever the line is. What you is. doing here, girl?
3: What you doing
2: here, girl?
3: The song keeps framing it up as her perspective of them watching her is that she's a nice girl that I guess they're nominally supposed to want to look after.
0: That shouldn't be in this dark bar with monsters. In this case, literal monsters. As opposed to just men in bars at 2am who are just figurative monsters. I don't know, there's something about her playing pseudo-tough that I thought was cute. I thought it was a really good number to pick for her. Mm -hmm. The song she could totally handle, um, what limited dancing she had to do, she could totally handle. She has the likes for it. You know, when they when they tear off her skirt and she's got the uh, like leotard on.
3: Looking back at the scene and realizing that she's probably lacking depth perception makes it significantly more
0: impressive. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I had no idea about her. I wouldn't have guessed it. She's like Seabiscuit. Um, <laughs> not actual Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit's uh, jockey was blind in one eye. I didn't know that. I only know it because of the movie Seabiscuit where Chris Cooper has a, an amazing line where he's just like,
2: He can't see. He's blind in one eye.
0: My friend worked on that movie, so we always make fun of that line. (laughs) We start our backstage story where Fozzie has got himself a joke writer. Apparently. This is a weird one because it's intentionally vague and not at all wrapped up. They're playing with form because
3: Fozzie's bit is going well and then we don't get to see him clinch it, which is ostensibly when you would hear the banana joke. Whereas typically if you would see something like this and you were... I guess for lack of a better term, gaslighting someone into thinking that something's a bigger deal than it is, we never actually see people respond to it in mass. You'll see one or two people who are in on the joke be like, oh yeah, I absolutely know what this is talking about. To hear the audience just be like, this is amazing, and then hear him say he closed with the joke and hear everyone else have that reaction, does create the impression that there is an actual banana joke. And I think the episode before last was another time when we saw everyone sort of taking the piss out of Kermit.
0: Apparently, Fozzie has hired a man named Gags Beasley as his comedy writer, and he's apparently famous, but Kermit's never heard of him. And Fozzie has been using this thing called the banana joke to end his act. Throughout the entire episode, everyone talks about how funny the banana joke is. Everyone talks about how famous it is. Everyone talks about how much of an idiot Kermit is for never having heard of it, but we never get to hear it ever. I'm not even 100% sure that Gags Beasley even exists. I don't know. It's very. It's a very weird storyline where it does seem to be them kind of taking the piss out of Kermit, but there's no payoff one way or the other.
3: Also, it seems kind of weird to think that everyone would be able to coordinate that much.
0: So the other idea is then there is a banana joke and there is a Gags Beasley, but how does, if he's that famous, how is he writing for some bear in this rundown vaudeville theater for five bucks? But they never justify it. They just kind of leave it up in the air. We come up on a Swedish chef bit and I have a theory. We've seen a few Swedish chef bits now. Do you think he just emigrated here because of the Second Amendment? Is the show set in America or is it set in England? I think it's set in America. There's no, I mean, they don't have British accents or anything, most true. of the puppets. So I always Fair. assume it was set in America. But the chef loves himself some guns.
3: It's true. I don't know. Like, I get, I also get the feeling that if, even if he was still in Sweden, he'd probably still be packing.
0: I, I think this is a very famous Swedish chef bit, actually, where he um, takes biscuits or cookies or whatever they are, tosses them up in the air and shoots at him. And again, just like he had a blunderbuss before, this is like a flintlock pistol. Excuse using mm-hmm. and he shoots holes in them and they come back down
1: and uh,
3: <laughs>
0: that's how he makes donuts this was just not the first time i've seen him wielding a firearm and i don't think it'll be the last
3: Probably not by a long shot. To be fair, a lot of the stuff he would try to prepare does try to kill him.
0: It may be completely reasonable to have a loaded weapon within reach at all times, considering the uh, things he does in the kitchen. He's had enough spaghetti try to strangle him. Fozzie has his monologue and he, he he delivers a couple, like, I don't think very funny jokes, but they're killing. And then um, he start like you said, he starts to do the banana sketch. And then we cut to Kermit off stage listening, or no, Hilda offstage listening to it. And so we never get to actually hear the banana sketch. And then it starts this ongoing gag of everyone's heard of the banana sketch but Kermit. Everyone's heard of Gags Beasley except for Kermit. But not only that, everyone thinks Kermit is a is a damn moron. Like they're real down on him.
3: But even Gonzo does though. And Gonzo is like the king of missing the cue.
2: I think somebody's pulling my leg. Somebody is pulling my leg. It's a great Gonzo. You never heard
3: of the banana sketch? Ah,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's kind of as low as you can get as if Gonzo was giving you shit, you know. They call him the Mozart of comedy and all this stuff. And, and the fact that Kermit's never heard of him is like, it becomes a point of ridicule for the entire episode. So then we have At the Dance. It's kind of weird. The music's a little different in this one. It's like they kind of tangoed it up.
1: You know, when I was in London, I saw them changing the guards. What? Were they dirty? <laughs>
0: It's got Mildred, it's got a pig, it's got Rolf. But here's what really happens in this. Animal finds his dream girl.
1: Uh You know, I'm falling for you. What can I do? Get out of the way. Ah! 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 Want to join me? Yeah. Ah!
0: It is actually kind of is the culmination of all the animal at the dance things we've had so far his bizarre fetish, he finally found a partner.
3: A gravity fetish?
0: (laughs) It's really funny, too, when he's like, okay, now...
3: Backwards!
1: Ah! Excuse me, sideways! Ah! Oh, that was fun! Ah!
0: It's a really, it's really funny. So then we got a sketch that Muppet Wiki calls Inner Beauty.
3: I liked it. It is a change of pace. Like, it doesn't have the same frantic energy that even some of the more milk toast sketches we've seen up to this point do. Like, this seems like it would have maybe been more in place on Sesame Street, but I still thought it was kind of sweet.
0: It felt like Sesame Street to me, too. One thing I, I did notice, so it's, um, Sweetums is down in the dumps because he's ugly, and uh, Sandy comes and basically talks him into, um, feeling that he's beautiful.
3: I think there's too much sadness in the world. You know what? If people just took a little time to look past the physical, they might find a lot of beautiful things about you.
1: Oh, 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 I feel so good. So, so loved.
2: So, so beautiful.
1: You see, if we feel beautiful, we are beautiful.
0: There's an image in this, though, where Sweetum says, because I used to be kind of scared of Sweetums when I was a kid a little bit. And so there's an image in this where Sweetum says,
1: Hello, flower.
0: As soon as I saw that this afternoon, it triggered me. That image is burned into my brain. <laughs> really? I don't know why, but that image of that flower wilting with sweetums and 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 all of a sudden Sandy Duncan. All of a sudden, this entire sketch, at least the stuff with sweetums, came to life in my head, triggering memories from when I was probably six years old. It's just one of those things. Early awareness triggers. Just I just remembered it. Like I remembered being almost remembered being a kid watching it. It does have a funny ending though.
3: So the thing that I think I really appreciate about the ending is we've seen Sandy Duncan go from being very very sweet and very supportive to being real
0: real presumptuous in like no time flat. So she is convinced Sweetums who is this ugly monster that he is beautiful inside and he has turned it around and so she she she's walking she's kind of she's kind of pleased with herself, you know, she's she's done her her white savior duty for the day and she comes upon a beautiful day monster or actually it's not even beautiful day monster it's actually a monster called behemoth sorry she sits down (laughs) and basically starts giving the same speech that she gave to sweetums but it's very clear that behemoth does not think that they're ugly
1: you mustn't look so sad oh i know that that you may appear to be on the outside ugly but inside I'll bet that you are as beautiful as a morning sunrise.
0: It's a pie to the face. Yeah, cream pie to the face. Very classic. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about it is she broke at the end of it. <laughs> Did you notice? She started laughing. Yeah. It probably isn't, but it feels like a long sketch.
3: It di- Like, I think it's just slower. But I think that's the pacing. Yeah. It might be a long sketch. I, I wasn't clocking it, but it, de- it definitely feels slower. I thought it was nice. It just... It was different.
0: Then we get the uh, UK spot, which is uh, gon- which is Rolf on the piano and Gonzo singing a song called Nobody. The song is credited to a guy named Bert Williams, who was a vaudeville performer, and this song is apparently goes back to 1906.
1: When I try hard in scheme and plan
2: to look as good
1: as air I can, who says? Look at that handsome man. Who does? Nobody. <laughs>
0: I described it as a a song that is depressing, nihilistic and, a, and also a grammatical nightmare. <laughs> like the grammar was actually getting to me. This is I think this is the first time though where we've had Gonzo singing at least a solo number.
1: never done nothing.
0: First time we've seen him do it. Gonzo sings certain type of songs, and this is the first one of those. I don't
2: intend to do nothing for nobody. No no time. time.
0: Gonzo's songs are usually somewhat self-deprecating, or they're about things that he wants to be, or you know, they're basically he basically like if Radiohead's "Creep" had been a song back in 1976, Gonzo would be singing "Creep."
3: God, he absolutely would be.
0: He has my favorite song in the Muppet movie, but it's a sad song. Sad-ish song. And they did do this song in the Jimmy Dean Show in 63 as well. Rolf and Jimmy Dean sang it. Now, according to – and I found this on the Muppet Wiki, but then I went and looked it up. According to the Muppet Show fan mag- – uh, fan, uh, you know, they used to have a fan newsletter. If you belonged in the fan club, you would get a newsletter every month. And there's a bunch of them available online I've been going through. And according to that, this this next sketch, Never Smile at a Crocodile – was the hardest thing they shot in the first season. I could see that. Or it took the longest amount of time.
3: It was one of the bigger set pieces.
0: This song is from... I just made that connection. Huh. She played Peter Pan. This song's from Peter Pan. Makes sense. Never Smiled a Crocodile is from the Disney Peter Pan movie. Huh. That actually... She's not in it, but that's at least a little bit of a connection. It, what's interesting, too, is that Mary Louise in this, the girl who's singing the song, is played by a woman named Raleigh Cruson, who we have not talked about. Raleigh Cruson was mostly a designer and a costumer, or a designer and a builder for the Muppets. She did a little bit of performing, but she won seven Emmys for her work on Sesame Street. She created Fizzgig in The Dark Crystal. Nice. Bean Bunny, Wayne from Wayne and Wanda, Wembley and Red from uh, uh, Fraggle Rock. Fraggle Rock were her builds. Uh, Zoe, Abby Cadabby on, on Sesame Street and actually the current Elmo um, Carly Wilcox who just passed away last week actually. Carly Wilcox created the original puppet I think it was called like Big Red or Little Red that turned into Elmo but it was uh, Raleigh Cruson who gave Elmo kind of a, a remake in 1988 that's much closer to the current Elmo now her name hadn't really come up in any of my materials, and it looks like she actually sticks with Henson for a long time. So I just thought I'd, I'd bring her up, and we should probably look out for her name more often. Mm-hmm. She didn't do a lot of performing. This is one of the only, I think she was only, I think she only did like two or three appearances. Mary Louise is riding a crocodile through a swamp, and the crocodile is eating his way through the cast of The Frog Prince.
3: Basically, yeah. Kinda. You see, I think, I can't remember if, I'm thinking of this or Kermit ending up in the box earlier. I feel like you saw a couple of frog muppets just get thrown as they either tried to escape or didn't.
0: And the thing is going around chopping frogs. Now they do cop out at the end where they'll like jump out of them at the end. Hmm. But it's still a pretty violent sketch as she's riding on it, kind of sidewinding a little bit through the set. There's a
3: a bit at the end where I think at least two of the frogs that it swallowed are being operated from inside of the, the crocodile's mouth. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of like, I'm sure there's a very clear way to do it, but it seemed pretty impressive to me because that crocodile muppet was massive for them to be moving around.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun sketch. Then we have a talk spot. The problem I have with this talk spot is, well, not a problem, I guess, but it's just an extension of the backstage story. Yeah. There's nothing specific to Sandy in it. All we learn is that Sandy has also heard of the banana sketch, and Sandy also thinks Kermit is a moron.
2: Oh, tell me, what is this banana sketch?
3: (laughs) You never heard of it? (laughs) Come on, Kermit. Everybody's heard of the banana sketch.
2: Who's it, Kermit?
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's an interesting bit of elaboration where she asks if he uses uh, a green banana or a yellow
0: banana for a specific part of it. So then there's a Muppet News Newsflash, um, which involves Sandy playing Mrs. Billie Jean Bonkers of Texas, who's trying to set the world jumping in place record. And uh, the way she's get, she does it is she's, she's jumping on a hot plate. So she has to keep jumping, whatever. So here's where I get murky. So then Piggy comes in and she is very upset, like almost turned off.
1: Oh, frog of my life, please tell me what they're saying about you is not true. What's that, Biggie? that oh, you, you host of a television show, veteran of the boards, you have never heard of the banana sketch?
0: <laughs> and again, here's another person telling him, you, a professional television maker, don't know what the banana sketch is. And Kermit goes on a rant.
2: Uh, Piggy, uh, said the frog, trying to refrain from losing his cool and looking like a bad sport. There is no banana sketch! There never was a banana sketch and there never will be a banana (laughs) sketch! Touchy, touchy!
0: Then a banana walks in. Okay. Hey,
2: which way to my dressing room? And don't try to shove me into the refrigerator.
0: I don't know what any of that means. Fozzie's been doing the banana sketch without the, a banana. So it's just weird. I, I, don't, I, I don't think this part of the joke quite comes together for me, at least. That just a talking banana shows up. That doesn't jive with what we've learned from Fozzie's act. Like there hasn't been this guy hanging around at all before that. I'm probably reading too much into the banana sketch storyline. I, I, I'm aware of that. But Veterinarian's Hospital is a very short one where Dr. Bob just loses his uh, watch And his patient, which isn't funny, by the way, because that happens. (laughs) Because I believe that has happened. Although, is that another Peter Pan reference? It's a stretch if it is, but I I could see it. I think it's a Peter Pan reference. I'm going to go back through this. and I'm going to see if there are more Peter Pan references. Then we have our, our final musical number. Sandy sings a song called Try to Remember, which is from the musical The Fantastics. But it was actually a song written by Tom Jones. And it was originally sung in the Broadway uh, performance. It was originally sung by Jerry Orbach of, uh, of course, uh, Law & Order fame. Dirty Dancing, great actor. But the late Jerry Orbach was the original singer of this song.
3: Try to remember the kind
1: of September When life was slow and oh so mellow Try! kind of september when grass was green and grain
3: was yellow
0: this is my least favorite type of musical numbers on the show which we saw last week with lena horn as well the performer sits gracefully and peacefully and all the muppets just kind of gather around and watch them sing and sing with them
3: it's not going to be the thing that I remember about this episode, um, which isn't to say that it's a bad thing. It's just sort of eclipsed by others.
0: Yeah, it just kind of laid there for me. It reminded me so much of the Lena Horn from from last week hmm. when she was like sitting at the thing and it's the, with kind the dog lighting. and they all came up, you know. Um, now, I'm saying that, but they also do that with Harry Belafonte, but it's amazing. So so then we get to the end and Kermit saying goodnight to everybody and Fozzie brings Sandia bouquet of bananas
3: kermit had her bring or had him bring her the bananas which i mean i guess that's kermit being a good sport about it
0: yes but then kermit says i hope that it's the last i ever hear of the banana sketch But that's not the banana sketch.
3: It's not. The bushel of bananas is just him being like, okay, maybe I don't get the joke, but this is something that makes you laugh, so here. But if Kermit is intended to act as something of an audience surrogate, I think us seeing the the banana sketch is less effective than Mm -hmm. us wondering what it is.
0: I felt a little unsatisfied, but that's kind of the point, so it's okay. Actually, I don't care about the banana sketch. I'm more more interested in this writer. I want to know about Gags Beasley. It would be interesting to see him on a future episode. I don't think we're going to. Editor's note, we're never going to meet Gags Beasley. He's just a joke. He is going to be mentioned again in season five. But in 1977, Muppet head writer Jack Burns hosted Saturday Night Live. And in it, he had a sketch where he played a drunk, washed up comedy writer named Gags Beasley, who bragged about writing the banana sketch. So apparently this is like a Jack Burns running meta joke thing. But there's not a, we're never going to meet Gags Beasley. So all in all, I think a couple of good episodes.
3: Yeah, they're, they're really solid. I think they're getting a much better hang on integrating the stars.
0: And I think the interplay between Fozzie and Kermit is just becoming a lot better. And that's, that's going to be the thing that anchors the backstage stories for pretty much the whole show. It's just punchier when the two of them are working well. Next time, more Sweet Nothings. Next time, we'll be watching episodes 115 and 116 with Candace Bergen and Avery Schreiber. I'm excited to read up on Candace Bergen. I don't really know a whole lot about Avery Schreiber. It's going to be an adventure for sure. I know he has a mustache, but that's pretty much all I got. Anyway, check us out, uh, lunaticdaring.com, at lunaticdaring on social media. Uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And we'll, we'll talk to you in two weeks. The of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Schonk and hosted by Chad J. Schonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of
2: Antithesis, Antithesis Audio. Mm, well, how'd you like the show? Eh, maybe I'm getting soft, but I loved it. Have a banana. <laughs> <laughs>